I'm joined today by Dr. Ben Bikikio. Now, Dr. Ben, or Benbo as he's known, was really quite a pioneer in the world of uh, low-carb lifestyles and resistance training and high-intensity interval training. He started this back in the 70s and has continued with it today. And if you, when you hear him talk, you're going to see his, his passion, his knowledge, and the impact he's had on, on a lot of the people he's worked with. And one of the things we talked about is the concept of you can't outrun a bad diet. And he has a different perspective on that that I think will be really important to hear. And, I mean, he knows his stuff. He's got his training. He has a Ph.D. in exercise physiology and a second Ph.D. in health and physical education. And like I said, he's been in practice since the 70s helping people. And it's important to hear sort of the, uh, the counterbalance to, oh, we don't have to worry so much about exercise. And his point is exercise is absolutely crucial when done correctly and works synergistically with diet to help us metabolically and help our health. So I hope you really appreciate and enjoy this interview with Dr. Ben Bikiki. All right, Dr. Ben Bikikio, thank you for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Brett. Always a pleasure to see you. Yeah, I've, I've, I've learned so much since I've met you. And one of the things that, that really was remarkable to me is that you've been doing this, this new thing called a keto, keto, low-carb diet <laughs> and high-intensity interval training, this brand-new fad thing since, oh, what, 1974? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, actually, personally, before that, but professionally and clinically, that started in 74. So give us some of the background of how you got started in this with your with your education and then what you were seeing in, in your clients and in you personally. Okay, well, I mean, I started off being an athlete. And my family had scientists in it and doctors. My parents were educators. My father was a firefighter and a teacher. And I always liked sports, and I was always fascinated with the training. One of my cousins, great cousins, really, we called him uncle, was the, the trainer and um, manager of Jersey Joe Walcott, who was the world heavyweight boxing champion before Rocky Marciano. So I used to go to the fights, and I'd get to go in the gym and watch these old guys train and box and stuff, and I was always fascinated by it. Yeah. And as an athlete, I was always really interested in how to train to be better at the sport, but I really liked the training part as much as the sport in some cases. And so I decided I was going to study this in college, and I got a degree in phys ed, health, and science, and then a master's... Uh, in education with a specialization in a resistance exercise. Then I did a PhD in exercise phys, exercise physiology. And the second one, after I was in practice for a while, I, I noted I had a low back center in Miami. Everybody was overweight. I had a, the largest fitness center in New York City. Everybody was, well, most people were concerned with their weight. Had a cardiac rehab center. And most of the problems for those people was they were overweight. So I decided, and I had pretty good business going then. I had the time. I decided to take a PhD, second PhD to get serious and study obesity. Hmm. So when you do a PhD, you, had, you do what you call a review of literature. So you have a theoretical basis for your hypothesis. Okay. So my review of literature was the development of obesity and fat-related disorders. So about eight or ten years before Gary Taubes wrote Good Calories, Bad Calories, I interviewed and studied bunch of the people that he did for his book. Oh, interesting. So when that book came out, I got a hold of Gary, and we've become really good friends and done seminars and uh, 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 presentations together, and so, so I got into that. But as far as the low-carb thing, I mean, to me it was all, you know, first-hand observation. People wanted to get lean, and the leanest people that I knew were bodybuilders. 
So I kind of asked them. It's kind of like asking a racehorse how to run fast, but I asked them what they were doing, and I kind of observed what they were doing. And they were, they were low-carb. I mean, before contests, these guys were low-carb, big-time low-carb, okay? And I thought, well, that's a good way to go. And I didn't mind it because I loved eating meat. And I, tr- I did it myself, and I felt really good. And I didn't. And at that time, I was still a fairly elite athlete. And I felt great in my performances and my energy and everything and physique. And, you know, I'm not a bodybuilder. I always had a decent set of, you know, a good set of Italian muscles. And uh, so I, I, I started doing it. And I used it for a lot of my first clients and patients and subjects and studies that I did. And so we did the keto, and then I created in 1974 slow resistance training. And the basis of that was high-intensity training that was safe and productive. And I really started out training athletes. In fact, going back to 1974, it might be interesting to note that I didn't even at first consider that women could do this. Oh, yeah. could do, there, wasn't, there wasn't such a thing. So I had a model come to me and an Olympic uh, volleyball player gal, and they worked their butts off. And I said, whoa, light went on. They, they can do this too. You know, I, mean, I literally did not even consider that as part of my model. You know? And so it, it grew ra- rapidly into orthopedic rehab, cardiac rehab, metabolic disorders, uh, all kinds of you know, sports training. Um, and so my clientele just got diverse and big very fast. And by the time I was, I think, 27 years old, I had seven of these facilities, centers all over the East Coast. And you know that was that's the deal, and then I've been doing yeah. it ever since. You know, so you really were sort of one of the pioneers in the field because you know yeah. now it's incredibly popular and people yeah. are talking about hit and mm-hmm. low carb. But back then, really, not many other people were talking about it. Well, low carb actually, I've seen about three iterations in the forty-five, fifty years that I've been doing this. Yeah. Okay, you had uh, Stillman, and you had then you of course you had Atkins, the, the initial yeah. stages, and he was in New York, and I was in New York at the time, and then these things, you know, they they got hot and then they went away. And I think I'm trying for this not to happen in this iteration, but I think we have more solid science and we have better people uh, to represent this drive, this this uh, yeah. uh, issue. So I think this time it'll stick. And I want to, but one of the things, you know, and I think Steve Finney, I, I realize Steve's almost as old as I am. And I realize we have kind of a similar perspective on some of the new claims made by the, the keto community. So you know, pump the brakes a little bit, so we yeah. so we don't get into that, you know, getting ahead of ourselves and making claims that are going to make us less reliable. That's a great point because when something becomes hot and something becomes uh, a new catchphrase and people are benefiting from it, it almost turns into a cure all, and then it, yeah. then you start to sound like you're selling snake oil because one thing can cure ever, can cure all. So what do you see as some of the areas where you think maybe the low-carb community has gone too far and needs to pump the brakes a little bit? Well, not, um, not intentionally, but anytime things get hot, like you say, people are going to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. You, you have keto socks, keto bow ties. You know, <laughs> I mean, they use the word, my, but that's my point. My point is you know, we have a specific set of metabolic issues and parameters that we deal with and we have science to back up the fact that we have some benefit derived from that practice. But some of these claims... Now, one of my pet peeves is, and I like, and I don't want to mention names unless you want me to, but um, some of the claims that are being made, for example, about fasting, Yeah. Okay. I think are still a little over the top and are unproven. Okay. Okay. Now, I wrote my first article about fasting in 1978. I was trained in therapeutic fasting by vegans... Really? Okay. Who had a therapeutic a fasting clinic, and I saw some wonderful results from this stuff. I mean, arthritic conditions, um, 
I'll tell a story about the girl who came in there at 12 years old and had had her tonsils out at 9 or 10. And after she had her tonsils out, she started to decline in her performance at school, her attitude, behavior. And at that time, they used ether. Oh. Okay, as a, so they fasted this girl, 12-year-old girl. I, was, I watched this. And I think on the fourth day, the fasting, see, fasting to me is not eating. It's eating once a day is not fasting in my mind in the therapeutic fasting genre, okay? But anyway, they fasted her for four days. And the fourth day, she felt better and the room stunk of ether three plus years later. That's bizarre. Yeah. I mean, if I didn't see it, I wouldn't, but, and then she felt better. Mm. So I, and I saw people, arthritic people come into that place that could hardly walk and some of them fasted two weeks. I'm talking two weeks with just water. Well, now it sounds like you're, you're talking about fasting as a miracle cure, but you said you have not, some concerns about well, what not, people not, it. Was, it, it, was a ther- it was therapeutic fasting. Yeah. Okay? And that's different from what we're doing, you know, in conjunction with keto. Now, I, I didn't say it's a miracle cure. I think it's a good, a good modality when used prudently. There's a yeah. sweet spot for this, for almost anything, a drug, a behavior, okay? Right. And this is one of them. My, I, don't, I have no problem with fasting. Uh, I think in most cases, responsible fasting. I have no car, problem with what they call intermediate fasting, and we used to call it eating once a day. See, I, I, the fasting thing connected to that to me is a little bit... I spoke to somebody yesterday who was fairly knowledgeable, and we had a little bit of an argument, <clears throat> and he said, well, really, technically, be- the four hours between my meals is when I'm fasting. I said, a fasting person doesn't accept that. I mean, so that means every minute that you are not eating, it, you're fasting. I, I don't consider that to be the right terminology and the right application of the concept. Okay? Right, there has to be a threshold somewhere to cross yeah, before yeah. I mean, it's Usually in, in my practice, I mean, we're talking about not eating for a full day. So you're sleeping mm-hmm. without having eaten that day. Okay, so I don't want to get too technical. And maybe it doesn't matter, but to me it just bugs me. Well, it is interesting because the term gets adopted popularly and then gets thrown around, and you want to make sure that you're using it in a way that's actually going to benefit people significantly, right? People want to get the maximum benefit for the minimum effort. So if you say, well, fasting six hours is is going to benefit me, well, okay, it's probably better than snacking, but it's not going to have the same impact as fasting three days but again, each is a tool to be used in a certain circumstance, not that they're all good for everybody in every circumstance. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go at. with the subjectivity and the individuality of it. I'll, I'll, I'll ride with that, okay? But if you think about it, Brett, if you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're fasting four hours and five hours. Uh, is that the case? No, I, I, don't, I don't consider that fasting. Yeah. Without, and let's not beat a dead horse, but okay. you, you get the idea. Yeah. The, the claims that I'm talking about are the metabolic claims of fasting. Okay, so let's go to the cellular. I'm a muscle guy, okay? So I know muscle physiology. I know protein synthesis kind of pretty decently, okay? If you're claiming that during fasting um, you have pro- you can up upregulate protein synthesis, it's a tough swallow because certainly no cell is dumb enough to basically grow in the absence of nutrients, okay? And no organism really does. Now, can you can you temporarily or something... And, and now the HGH claims, okay? The H- human growth hormone. Yeah, growth hormone, human growth hormone claims that during fasting, the HGH uh, basal level or, or responsive level goes up. Now, I think, this is my opinion, this is not science yet because there isn't any, um, that this is this furtive effort of the cell trying not to die. And so it's pumping a little bit. You have these spikes in HGH without much area. You have some amplitude. 
okay? Because the cell's saying, please don't die. I'm going to try to get some HGH into this thing so I don't die. I, I think that's different than HGH from exercise. And, and some of those studies show that you can increase um, HGH to double the basal rate. But, but by the same token, my pitch is there are plenty of studies that show high-intensity training, exercise, muscle training, increases HGH by 15 to 20 to 25 times. Yeah. So I, I think that if you calculate that these things are somehow equivalent, I, I think it's just silly. And, right. and I think a little irresponsible. Interesting. That's that's a big statement. So I definitely want to get into the exercise, but you, you've distracted me here with the fasting, so I want to keep <laughs> going with the fasting. So one of the big concerns about fasting is loss of muscle mass. That's mm -hmm. one of the biggest concerns, that we're going to put people at risk of sarcopenia and accelerated muscle loss, and you're the muscle guy. So yeah. wh what do you think about that? Well, again, I think it, it's how you apply the modality. Yeah. Okay. So I think some fasting, and, uh, and I think autophagy is part of this whole cycling. You don't, you don't build muscle from exercise. In fact, you a little bit break it down for a day or so, and then you start to rebuild. Protein synthesis becomes up. The ribosomes become more active. The mitochondria build up I mean, you, because you've demanded energy. These are good things. These are youthful anti-aging, if you want to go there, right. things. Uh, longevity kind of things. They happen. Okay, But during the, there is a time at which... Uh, this can you can have this degradation now. I think Steve Finney is going to speak on this, but um, I see the same thing now. Years ago, I did a fasting experiment with about twelve athletes, and at that time, we used a hydrostatic weighing, you know, an underwater weighing for body comp. I wanted to see on a five-day fast what happened, what I could measure. Right. Okay. This is I think maybe the late seventies, early eighties at the, the latest, um, and I did it myself. And the first two days, according to hydrostatic weighing, we lost lean tissue. No question. Now, understand, Brett, that hydrostatic weighing considers everything equal, equal of equal or higher density than water to be lean, including so, bones. Well, well, of course, but yeah. I'm saying understand the, the the key word is water. Okay. Water is considered lean yeah. in hydrostatic weighing, so you know on a car low carb diet or okay keto diet you're going to lose water the first few days, right? Okay. Now, and since muscles 80 percent water, fat 17, then it, it's assumed in an algorithm that it's muscle. Okay. Oh, I see. But, okay, so, but this is what it showed, and that was the gold standard at the time for uh, body composition. Okay. So we lost muscle the first couple of days, and then the last three days we wore, lost equal amounts of fat and muscle. Okay. Okay. So there is uh, some indication that we're definitely losing some muscle. Now, I don't recommend five-day fasts that aren't therapeutic and supervised, okay? But in the, in the, the, the uh, lexicon now... You know, a, a once a day eating, I don't think has this drastic effect. I think that's perfectly fine. I'm not seeing, I knew plenty of people, and I'm, I'm talking plenty, I'm talking hundreds of people that ate once a day and did well and had huge muscle mass and and kept it into, you know, extended years. Yeah. So so when you work with people and, and have them fast under supervision, do you... I, I don't do that. Okay. Okay, I mean, I, I understand how to do it. Yeah. Okay, but I really haven't done it because that to me gets into almost a a medical practice or a, an application that I'm, I'm familiar with, but I don't feel competent in, uh, yeah. I don't feel competent so, supervising. So in your opinion then, uh, without science and just, just your opinion, um, would light to moderate resistance training during a fasting period help offset that, that muscle and lean tissue loss? Good question. So basically what you're talking about um, what is the priority of the, of the organism? Is it to sustain muscle or is it to preserve energy? Right. So 
well, was it more important for us to have the energy to go out and hunt to get the food or to have the food to go out and hunt? Okay, so chicken and egg a little bit. So mm. I'm not sure, but if you're talking about uh, intermittent fasting or a one-day fast, you can do anything you want. You can play. There are guys that have played NFL football that have run uh, Olympic races uh, in that condition, and there's no evidence of that. But, but again, now it depends on the response, like any medication, like any uh, behavioral intervention, depends on the response. It depends on the pathways that we've induced to what level on the, for the individual. But in my experience, I've not seen a problem with that at all. Yeah. You can go high intensity, you can blow it out if you want to, if it's one day fast. You know, okay. no, I haven't seen any problem. Yeah. Now, do I think, to answer your question, to do, doing some exercise during a fast, and, and a three day fast or something, you could, I, I have no reason to believe, and I don't think there's any evidence in the literature to believe that a mod, at least moderate intensity exercise would be damaging. I don't see why it would. Okay. All right, so now that we're on the exercise topic, okay. uh, the big phrase that I know kind of ruffles your feathers a little bit, you can't yeah. outrun a bad diet, right? Yeah, That's yeah, been a yeah, very yeah. common phrase that we've heard, and for good reason, because for a long time it was just this eat less, move more sure. message yeah. that, that we know doesn't work for the majority of the people. So then that transitions to you can't outrun a bad diet, basically meaning you need to focus on your nutrition first before you start exercising for weight loss. But okay. tell me your thoughts on this. I, I don't agree with that. Yeah. I, I gave a presentation at Low Carb here yesterday, and I said um, – if you don't use both of these modalities, there is so much synergy. When we undertake a, any kind of a treatment, behavioral, pharmacological, whatever it might be, we are instigating or attempting to directly instigate certain metabolic pathways. That's really what we're trying to do, is it not? Uh, with keto diets, we're trying to instigate metabolic pathways. Right. So we identify these pathways, okay, so we know what some of them are. And I can show you literature and, and pound for pound how high-intensity exercises is a, at least a, an, an additive, if not a synergistic component of this. You're going to get much more bang for your buck. And I can instigate a lot of those pathways without being on a keto diet. Yeah. So what's, you know, what's more important? To me, the sensible way to apply this is together. So I don't think... Now, behaviorally, I understand if you've got a 350-pound diabetic and you don't want to give him too much to absorb behaviorally, this is going to be ominous, I have to watch, I can't eat bread and I have to exercise... Okay, I, I could go with that. But physiologically, metabolically, I do not go with that. I mean, I think you have to exercise. The muscle system's power and efficacy uh, as an endocrine organ has been underestimated, and, and we in medical and uh, graduate school have not been taught to, to recognize that and appreciate it. Yeah, I think that a number of good points there. One is we don't want to overwhelm people by giving them too much, so sometimes mm -hmm. simplifying the message to say just focus on your diet and don't worry about exercise is an easier pill to swallow, so to speak, an easier transition to make. But your next point is if you want to have maximum effect, then you also have to consider the exercise in addition to the nutrition. But when you use the word high-intensity interval training, mm -hmm. I think that's come to be synonymous now with sprinting, with you know treadmill repeats or bicycle repeats as hard as you can for 30 seconds or a minute, um, you know, the the boot camp type workouts, yeah. but you you use that also to mean resistance training. No, I, I actually, I don't mean, use it to mean any of the things that you just described to yeah. me. Okay, that's hard work. Okay, <laughs> if I give you a pick and a shovel, ask you to dig, dig a 20-foot trench six feet deep, that's not high-intensity training, interval training. Okay. okay. That's not productive exercise. So I don't agree with that. High-intensity exercise is a direct, organized muscle fiber recruitment pattern for your body on a 
for the particular workout, the timing between the workouts, the methodology of the workout. What we're trying to do is to induce these fight or flight, life or death, type 2B muscle fibers to come into play and tax them to a threshold level. Okay, so now we have, we have certain parameters that are human parameters. Nobody can work at a high intensity uh, at, uh, with, that, with those type 2 muscle B, type 2 fibers, sorry, uh, type 2 B fibers, more than probably about 90 seconds. So if you're going longer than that, either you have to lower the intensity, okay? So it's not that the, it's hard exercise. It's not that it's demanding and grueling. It may be all of those, but that, that's not what defines high intensity exercise. So this is a universally applicable concept. If somebody is very sedentary, having them get off that chair three times may tax their type 2B muscle fibers, and therefore they're in a high-intensity metabolic load, okay? And so the concept that we normally, high-intensity, oh, it's hard, but it's, you know, that's my little red badge of courage, has nothing to do with it. It has very little to do with it, yeah. okay? It's this, in my mind, this is, this is a prescribed, controlled environment to tax those muscles to this threshold level under control, safely, and in a sequence of time and, and recovery that's organized and, and subject to physiological parameters that we know exist. Yeah, so it sounds like on the surface that this would require somebody who's already fit, already knows what they're doing, has gym knowledge, but no, you say this can happen, anybody can do this. Today, we just trained 15 or 20 people some who had major orthopedic problems, some who haven't exercised in, quote, 45 years, yeah. some who were obese, many of whom were diabetic and don't exercise. We just did it with them, okay, yeah. at every level, uh, from, I would say, 25 to 75 today. Right. And I've done this mm, tens of thousands of times. So, yeah. No, you can, you can do this at any level, okay? My last slide said, you know, fat kids, rich kids, poor kids, anybody can do this, and it was with some little ditty. In any case, you can do this with anybody. I did it with phase two cardiac rehab patients, mm -hmm. okay? I did it with orthopedic patients. I've done it with people in wheelchairs. I've done it with world-class, world-record holder athletes, kids, older people. I mean, it, all we're trying to do is to tax those fibers, and, and subjectively, it's the same demand, but objectively, it could be totally different totally different uh, planets. Yeah. Okay. And, and so how does that work then when you're taxing these fibers? Mm -hmm. um, is, what's the mitochondrial effect? What's the cellular effect that okay. you can see with this type of exercise? Okay. So what happens is, this is something I'm, I'm going to get across, and I, and I put this in, in my talk, okay? So we're doing what we consider, most people consider strength work. I just consider it muscle taxation, okay? So... We're doing something locally in the biceps or the quads or wherever we might be working. There is a global support mechanism. The circulatory system increases, okay? The uh, respiratory, uh, respiratory system has to supply oxygen. Your breathing accelerates. Hormonal changes happen. Skeletal system adapts. Neurological system. Okay, so the driver of all of these major organ systems is exercise, is muscle contraction if you think about it. Okay. We would not have needed a heart that can pump 10 times no above normal if we didn't have a muscular demand. We would not be, have to breathe four times, seven times more oxygen per unit of time if we didn't have to do some exercise, muscle, some muscle action didn't demand it. Even the brain. The brain didn't grow until you know, the, it grew much more uh, 
significantly when we had vigorous exercise. And we know that the more you exercise, or at least you tax these muscle fibers at a certain level, the, the more the brain increases its neurotransmission capacity. Okay, so my point is the muscle system is um, really important, and and I don't know if I'm going off track here a little bit, but. So, you know, with that in mind, we try to develop this system that's safe and scientific and not time-consuming, but it is universally applicable. Yeah. Okay, you don't have to have, uh, I mean, you can do this with bands at home. And if you saw Doug Reynolds and I doing on Low Carb USA, me taking him through, and Doug's a pretty strong guy, yeah. uh, he got his butt kicked just using bands. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it took us, I think, 12 minutes to go through his whole body. Yeah. So it, it's... It, it can work. It, it it does work. It's applicable. Yeah, that's a really really another important part about this is the barrier to access. Because uh, some people say, oh, I don't want to have to drive to the gym and sure. change my clothes, and I don't want to have to spend an hour. And you're saying, no, do this at home. Do this with simple equipment. Do it for ten to fifteen minutes, and you're good as long as you do it correctly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if that's what you want, some people like the social atmosphere of a gym, and some people have a different piece of equipment. I, I have no problem, but you have to reach those metabolic thresholds, those fatigue thresholds, that taxation of those type 2 muscle fibers, whatever the modality. I think that's the key. You have to work each muscle to fatigue. Each exercise has to be to fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, I don't know if you've heard of, let me see if I got him down here, Keith Barr. Keith Barr. You've got to listen to Keith Barr. He is an exercise physiologist, research, cellular dude, okay, out of, out of UC Davis, top of the line, yeah. mTOR guy, knows his stuff. In his research, in a Petri dish, he has come to the conclusion that muscle stimulation should be slow in nature. It should be probably a couple of times a week, and each exercise should be taken to failure. Now, that's exactly what I do. Now, I came from the gym 50 years ago and came up with this. He came from a Petri dish, and we've arrived at the same place. That's fascinating. Which is interesting. Yeah. Okay, and I'm going to get a hold of him, and we're going to have some contact and maybe do some studies. But... This is pretty interesting, okay? This is really what works primarily and most, almost exclusively, this, this kind of formulation. And so, again, uh, and one of, the, one of the things I brought up in my talk was that if you are in the top one-third of, for muscle strength in your age group, for your gender, you are 25% more likely to live to be 100 and at least 40% less likely to die of cancer. In an, as an isolated variable, if you're diabetic, if you're overweight, if you're a smoker, doesn't matter. Mm. Okay, doesn't doesn't reflect uh, on that statistic. Yeah. So muscle strength, as we know. So you asked me about sarcopenia. Okay, so sarcopenia is almost always a matter of lack of physical activity or indoor exercise, which I consider two separate and distinct issues. Important differentiation. Yeah. 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 So activity offsets the problems that we can occur with sedentary behavior, okay? So as a species, if we were sedentary, you died. You couldn't get away from the predator. You couldn't get the food and water and shelter. Now we die, but it takes 65 years, okay? Uh, So that's activity, and I think you should be active. But exercise is every three or four days taking down a big old animal to eat, working your butt off for a few days, taking it easy, and then you got to go out again. But if you had to do that every day, you would have been dead. Couldn't have sustained it, so there's the recover. There's the recovery genetically determined from ex- high intensity exercise. Very interesting. Yeah. All right. So, so to go back to the original statement, then you can't <clears throat> outrun a bad diet. Would you say that's true? But you can outlift a bad diet. Yeah, I mean, we we know that 
uh, aerobic cardiovascular, quote, cardiovascular exercise has proven to be useless in fat reduction. Okay, I mean, that, there's no question about it. It's the wrong prescription. Yeah. So the prescription came out, the history of this came out kind of simultaneously. Fat's bad, work, you know, eat carbs, start to run. Okay, those things happened almost contiguously, simultaneously they happened. Okay, so what happened when we applied those techniques? Okay, People got fatter and sicker. People got fatter and fatter and did more and more exercise and yeah. ate more and more carbs, okay? So the physiology of aerobic exercise instigates fat usage, but fat recycling. So here's, here's one of the things that I put into my book that I think people understand. There's fat borrowing and then there's fat burning. Hmm. In, in an aerobic cycle, the, the normal fat, fatty acid to triglyceride cycle happens continuously. Okay? We borrow from that cycle for aerobic exercise. That's why it's steady state. That's why steady state by definition means it doesn't make a big imposition on your metabolism, right? Because you can sustain it. Okay. If we do type 2B high intensity exercise, it is anything but steady state. It drives an adrenaline response, okay? Yeah. That adrenaline response produces um, release of free fatty acids because I'm running, I'm, I'm running out of glycogen or I'm being threatened of running out of glycogen, the life and death fuel. And so your body says, we need some backup here, okay? Because I think I'm running out of this. Whether you run out of it or not, I think if you threaten that, if you deplete at a very high rate, yeah. your body gets into this you know, survival kind of a mode releases adrenaline, which in an amplification ca cascade, excuse me, amplification cascade produces this free fatty acid release, okay? And adrenaline, I think, can cleave, I don't know how many thousands of molecules of, of uh, glycogen, uh, just one, one molecule of adrenaline. I mean, so it's a powerful, potent. So now what, what we've done in this fat cycle, we've borrowed from our stored fat. We've actually used, we've now taken this out from triglyceride into free fatty acid. So when we're done with exercise, as opposed to when you're done with aerobic exercise, you've borrowed, you've created this, you know, we've created this deficit. Mm -hmm. So what does your body do? I mean, Gary Tabbs has, has mentioned this. What your body does is it slows down and it gets hungry. Yeah. So the net effect is zero. I think that's yeah. so important. The hunger effect yeah. is so important. So, what, but when you release all these fatty acids, you know after an exercise or this adrenaline kind of a thing, your metabolic rate stays high. And you know if you have adrenaline flowing, you're not hungry. Okay, right. so there's a whole different response mechanism to high-intensity exercise than there is to supposedly fat-burning aerobic exercise. Right. Now, how about how the diet impacts that? I mean, can you still have those benefits from a high-carb diet? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There. So if we're if we're talking about maintaining protein synthesis, which is maintaining muscle, which is anti-sarcopenia. Okay, understanding that kind of a concept. All right. Um, there are three ways that you can instigate protein synthesis. One are amino acids, leucine's a big one, but amino acids, two are growth factors, mm -hmm. and three are mechanical stress. Okay, now mechanical stress and, stress and growth factors do the same thing. So you really only need one of two of those. So we need your aminos, that's the eating, that's the synergy, and we can do the exercise. One of the growth factors is insulin, but as low-carb people, we don't want insulin. So forget insulin. Use the amino acid input with the mechanical induction and, and deformation and stress mm -hmm. and you can increase protein synthesis on a ketogenic diet right we don't need the growth factor of insulin right but if you i guess my point is though 
that you can see benefits whether you're eating low carb or high carb. Either one is going to see similar muscle benefits, but then maybe different benefits for fat loss or different benefits. Oh, absolutely. In yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, the insulin actually is a growth factor that would benefit protein synthesis. Yeah. Don't forget, it drives other stuff other than just sugar or fat. Okay, it drives protein synthesis also. Right. In fact, some of your big time elite or grotesque bodybuilders uh, inject insulin. Mm. Right. And that's how they grow. Right. So, but in our case, for the for the ninety five percent of the population, you, insulin is really a kind of an right. has a negative connotation with good uh, cause. Right. So, for someone who who has started on the journey of improving their diet, improving their lifestyle, going low carb, and has read all the all the lines of you can't outrun a bad diet, so it's sort of you know put away exercise for a little while to focus on diet. How do you recommend they get started with a program like this? How do you recommend they get started with implementing exercise to improve their health? Everyone that, ha as long as there's no anatomical problem, no, no injury problem, and you can work around those, can work all the major muscle groups in their body safely and simply with about seven exercises uh, with bands. Or I am not a big body weight guy. I think there's a little bit of, that's another th thing that's under my craw. Some of our colleagues do these stunts, these very difficult body weight exercises. I wouldn't prescribe that to anybody I train, even my world-class athletes. I think we're starting to get into Cirque du Soleil stuff here. Oh, look what I can do. I can do these pistol squats. I can do some other. Who the hell is going to do it? Brett, come on. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I can't prescribe that to people. It's a little that, too challenging for most people. Yeah, and, 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 and the skill aspect of this, I think, overcomes the muscle the productivity of the muscle work. I mean, you can get it done much more safely and much more simply than that. Yeah. Okay, so the use of some kind of resistance other than the gravity that Earth provides for us and our body weight, to me, is much more benign and simple. Almost everybody can do all of the exercises, and the ones that they can't, we can substitute an exercise to work that muscle group in one of its functions so we're not at a big loss. You know, So you work the whole body. Again, there are local and global benefits of exercise. Yeah. Locally... Insulin sensitivity. You've got insulin sensors in all your muscles. Why not tax them? Okay, You've got mitochondria in all your muscles. Why not instigate their increase in, in behavior? Okay, uh, We have mTOR uh, production in all of our tissues, actually. I mean, there's, So all of these growth factors can, can come into play, and I think they come into play more globally by working um, sectionally each muscle group. So I like to work the whole body in one day, then allow the body to recover as a total unit okay, instead of an arm and a leg, this is chest day, this is like, that, that comes from the bodybuilders, and there are a lot of wannabe kind of guys in, the, in our deal now that start to, you know, they've done some exercise, and they have, they can, you can see their abs, and you can see their biceps, you know, and, you know, good for you, but you're not a bodybuilder, so get off that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what about the people who say, I want to do this to be healthy, but I don't want to get too bulky, I don't want to look okay. big, like, My answer, because yeah. this question has been asked to me, this now is the 10,000 and one <laughs> one time okay if you think for some reason you're going to do an, an exercise and wake up like the hulk the next day tearing out of your clothes okay this is not going to happen yeah so if you get to a point where you're getting too big and too muscular you call me and you tell me and we'll figure out how to how to minimize that okay that problem happens almost never good to know good to know <laughs> all right and and then what about um People who are concerned about hunger, like we talked about with the um, with the cardio exercise, it can fuel hunger, mm -hmm. and you sort of give yourself a, a an excuse to eat more. And with this type of exercise, 
you said doesn't stimulate hunger as much, but you find psychologically people still use it as a crutch to eat, eat more? Yeah, Brett, psycholo- we can go into the behavioral and psychological stuff, and then we, we would have another 300 hours of interview. But yeah, um, yeah some people think, oh, I exercise so I can eat, which, right. is, which is stupid. Okay, and I don't know how else to describe it. But physiologically, and, and don't forget now, high-intensity exercise has effects on leptin, Mm-hmm. Okay, ghrelin. I mean, it has these effects, and there are plenty of studies, you know, that it affects, uh, it actually reduces leptin levels and things. I mean, this, these are good things that happen, okay? Uh, and, and again, if we don't vacillate, in my opinion, blood sugar levels, which are going to have these spikes and drive hunger, okay, which, again, if you're more insulin sensitive, but through this muscle work, okay, it, it serves as almost a panacea for a lot of the um, exaggerated symptoms of hunger. And even understanding if we control leptin, not only do we control the signals of hunger, we control the psychological hunger. I mean, that there are two separate and distinct mechanisms that, that leptin uh, instigates. Yeah. Okay. Well, so leptin helps you feel full, so you would, yeah. uh, you would want sort of more leptin to be Well, no, oh, oh, don't forget leptin, it, it, you can become leptin resistant. You can become leptin resistant. Okay, yeah. so that, and then, that, then we start to get into dynamic range of... Tissue of, of uh, um, substances and molecules, you know, dynamic range. If you have a high level of fasting insulin and you ha- take a bolus, you take uh, an imposition of glucose and say it takes 20, the, you, you know, 20, level 20 of insulin to adjust to that and your basal level is 18, you do not have the dynamic impact of someone whose basal level is 7 or 8. Mm. Okay, so it doesn't really affect, that's why you're insulin resistant. Okay. Because you, their dynamic range is minute. Right. Somebody who's down in seven or eight, you give them something that requires twenty-two of insulin, 20, level twenty-two of insulin, they're going to get a good bang out of their buck from that twenty-two because the dynamic range is important enough to, for you to get a, a significant response. Okay. So that's another issue: this dynamic range concept. Okay. And, and leptin's pretty much the same way. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, I think it's a fresh perspective that people need to hear because we we are so. We, we repeat the phrase so much that you cannot run a bad diet because the cardio exercise is not the best way for, uh, for weight loss. And it's important that we realize that, but then also important to hear your side that wait, there are other ways to exercise. We can do this better to still impact our metabolic health, to still improve our overall health and to work synergistically with a low carb exactly. diet. So, synergistically, big word, but that's yeah. really important. Oh, that's, More bang for your buck. I really appreciate that message, and, I th- and I'm glad I had you on today to kind of help our, our listeners understand this and give them a little bit of a framework to how to get started with this. So if people want to learn more about this system, where can they find you to hear more? Uh, drbenbow.com, I believe. And I, I'm not a big website guy, but I know I have all the information there where they can contact me. I mean, I take phone calls, emails um, from people, and I enjoy it. I, you know, I have enough spare time that I can get through this. Forgive me if I don't get back to everybody right away on emails because we're starting to get a whole bunch of stuff going on. But, uh, I bet. Yeah. But, right. yeah, and it's fun. Uh, I would certainly like to help, and they can come to these conferences. I mean, you and I did a private conference, uh, which was really cool, low-carb conference. Uh, I'm asked to speak at a number of things now, and I'm on some podcasts. So, yeah. Great. That's it. All right. Well, thank you for your passion, and thank you for your message. Yeah, always good to see you, Brett. All right. You too, Dr. Ben. Take care. Have a great day. Bye.